Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, What shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Help us, Heavenly Father, to understand your word this evening. May it bring about in us the purpose for which you have given it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The resurrection of Jesus is a doctrine that at various times we rightly draw a lot of comfort from. But it is also a doctrine that at other times we are slightly embarrassed by or a bit awkward about. When talking about the resurrection of Jesus, do you ever catch yourself thinking, this sounds like happily ever after land, they'll never buy it. And then, right then, as those words are coming out of your mouth, you're not so sure that you buy it. Well, it is a wonderful doctrine. It is also a crucial doctrine. The Christian faith stands or falls on it. 
Paul wrote to the Christians at Corinth, didn't he? If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And so we need to buy it. We need to truly believe it and to be sure of it. Perhaps that is why the book of Acts assures us over and over again that God did indeed raise Jesus from the dead. In these verses, we see how his resurrection was no new idea, but something that had been foretold hundreds of years earlier in the Old Testament. And when you put that side by side with the testimony of the apostles who were eyewitnesses, a point that is repeatedly made, you realise that when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, we are on very, very solid ground. We are not in the realm of happily ever after land, but in the realm of historical fact. Fact is the word that Peter uses, isn't it? As you can see at the end of verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. So the fact of the matter is, Jesus is risen. And that means that our faith is not futile and thankfully we are not still in our sins. Praise the Lord many times for that. Now Acts chapter 2 verses 14 to um, 41 recount the first evangelistic sermon of the New Testament church delivered by the Apostle Peter. As you know, the Holy Spirit had just come upon the Apostles and Peter addressed a crowd who, having heard the Apostles speaking in all kinds of different languages, no doubt proclaiming the Gospel as the Holy Spirit enabled them, the crowd presumed, verse 13, that the best explanation of all this was that the apostles had got themselves tanked up. And so Peter piped up and he told them the truth. And it's worth noticing that though the Holy Spirit had just been poured out, which was why the apostles were able to share the gospel in different languages, Peter didn't use this as an opportunity to talk about the Holy Spirit. He preached about Jesus. He took them to Jesus. I love these, uh, how these verses show how Peter turned an attack, an accusation of drunkenness into an opportunity such that by verse 37, people are asking how to be saved. And by verse 41, about 3,000 have been added to their number. And that came about as Peter preached about the Lord Jesus. But he probably didn't preach what you might expect. In this first evangelistic sermon from the New Testament church, he did not preach on the cross. The cross is mentioned once in passing, verse 23, and referred to once more in verse 36. But that's it. But the resurrection is mentioned or referred to or implied nine times. You see, the gospel, the good news is basically that Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour. And that can be shown to people in a number of ways. And Peter touches on, on all of them, really, in these verses. Some of you may have heard um, or seen before the gospel diamond. It's uh, coming up on the screen. Now, the thing with a diamond is that um, whatever angle you look at it from, it sparkles and it is very beautiful. And the gospel diamond just illustrates how the good news of Jesus Christ being Lord and Saviour 
can be explained from different angles and still reveal this very same beautiful truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour. So let me show you that. We've got all the, all the, uh, the things up on the screen. We're going to have them one at a time, but we've got them all at once. Never mind. Let me show you. So you can see that Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour through his life. Peter touches on that, doesn't he, in verse 22, as he refers to the miracles, wonders, and signs that Jesus did. And as you look at Jesus' life, how he healed the sick, forgave people their sins, and raised the dead, you see that he is indeed Lord. He is Lord over sickness. He's Lord over death. And also you see that he is the one who is able to save people from those things, from sickness or from death. So Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour, seen through his life. And you can see that Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour through his death, which is touched on in in verses 23 and 36. We know, don't we, from the gospel accounts that uh, Jesus called the shots during his arrest and his trial. You see, he was Lord in it. But he was also the saviour through it, saving us from the punishment we deserve. Jesus Christ is Lord and saviour, seen through his death. And you can see that Jesus Christ is Lord and saviour through his resurrection. His resurrection demonstrates very clearly, doesn't it, that he is the Lord, even the Lord over death. And that means that he is the only one able to save others from death. Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour, seen through his resurrection. And you can see that Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour through his return as judge. This is perhaps hinted at in verse 35, where Peter says that, One day Jesus' enemies will be his footstool. On the day that Jesus judges, he will be seen to be the Lord of all. His enemies will bow before him. And he will be seen to be the saviour of all who have trusted him. Jesus Christ is Lord and saviour, seen through his return as judge. Now, seeing how you can show that Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour through his life, death, resurrection, or return as judge means that there are lots of different ways for us to speak about Jesus in a helpful way. And it means that not every evangelistic sermon or conversation needs to be exactly the same. And in this first evangelistic sermon of the New Testament church, Peter focuses on the resurrection to show that Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour. So notice with me, if you will, a number of things that Peter teaches us here that should assure us that Jesus is the risen Lord and Saviour of all who believe in him. First thing that's coming up on the screen is that David was sure that Jesus would be raised. David was sure that Jesus would be raised. So Peter was speaking, as you can see in verse 22, to men of Israel, And he's straight on the front foot. He uses the word you five times, basically to show them their guilt with regard to Jesus. And it gives a bit of background to the resurrection. So he says in verses 22 and following, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Well, there's the background. 
And then comes the big assertion in verse 24, which he goes on to prove. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And knowing that he was speaking to a predominantly Jewish crowd, he calls as his first witness Israel's greatest king, King David. In verse 25 and following, Peter quotes from Psalm 16, a psalm in which David celebrates the benefits of a life lived under the rule of God. And one of the really big things that David mentions is the prospect of life beyond the grave. Peter quotes David in verses 26 and 27, saying, My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave. So David clearly anticipated a physical resurrection. His body would live in hope. And he feels certain that the place for dead bodies, the grave, will not be his final resting place. God will not abandon him to the grave. And then he says at the end of verse 27, nor will you let your holy one see decay. Well, in a sense, David was God's holy one. Holiness is to do with being set apart. And David certainly was set apart as Israel's king. But of course, there's a problem with this. Although David was right to have a personal hope of physical resurrection, his body did die and did see decay. And Peter makes that point in verse 29. He says, brothers... I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. He's saying that David has long since fed the worms. His grave is still here and tourists are welcome to come and have a look if they'd like to. Surely if David hadn't been left in the grave to decay, his grave would have would have been disturbed and would no longer exist all these years later. So was David lying or deluded when he spoke those words in Psalm 16 about not being abandoned to the grave and not seeing decay? Well, no. Have a look at verse 30 and following. Peter says, But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. Well, I reckon that uh, David did have a personal hope of not being abandoned to the grave, but that was because he knew that the Christ would not be abandoned to the grave. And this is how God's covenant with David for an ever-reigning king would be fulfilled. Not first and foremost through him personally beating death. In fact, he already knew that he wasn't going to beat death because when God sent the prophet Nathan to declare his covenant with David, he actually referred to David dying. Nathan said, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers. So David was under no illusion that he, about what would happen to him. But he had hope because he knew what would happen to the Christ. It's worth seeing how our Christian hope today is the same as David's hope. 
we believe, according to our Lord's own word, that whoever believes in him will live even though he dies. And that Jesus is the first fruits from among the dead, but that other fruit will follow. Because of Jesus, we have hope in the face of death. Like David, we believe that because of the risen Christ, we will not be abandoned to the grave. Our bodies live in hope. Now you can see the point that Peter is making, verse 32. God has raised Jesus to life. It's as if he's saying to those men of Israel, you do the maths. They wouldn't need to be brain of Britain to realise that the risen Lord Jesus is the one that King David spoke about. Surely he, Jesus, is the forever king, the Christ that all Israel had been waiting for. And if David was sure that this would happen long before Jesus was actually raised, then, well, now that he had been raised, these men of Israel should be doubly sure. No one else ticks the Psalm 16 boxes. No one else has been raised from the grave. No one else has avoided the decay of death. Wonderfully though, Peter's hearers didn't just have to look back to the words of King David. They could also look around them at the effect of Jesus' resurrection on his, on his apostles. So notice second, it's coming up on the screen. The apostles were sure Jesus had been raised. First, David was sure Jesus would be raised, but then the apostles were sure Jesus had been raised. So Peter said, verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. The we here is Peter and the 11 who were standing with him, including the newly appointed Matthias. And what exactly had they all witnessed? Well, some of them had seen the empty tomb and then Jesus appeared to them all in the upper room and ate fish in their presence and then there were many other appearances. One of the songs we sang tonight referred to them, including breakfast on the beach when Jesus reinstated Peter following his infamous denial. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Luke records how Jesus, after his suffering, showed himself to these men, that is, the apostles. And it says, Luke records, that he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. Many convincing proofs. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. In our church family in Kendry, there are a couple of families who sadly, whose sons have died in their early 30s through drug or alcohol addiction. One couple tell me that from time to time, they see someone who looks just like their son. One says to the other, look over there. And the other knows what they're thinking and for a few moments they just stare at him. But then the person uh, moves or turns their head slightly and they know that it is not really their son. But that is not the kind of thing that happened to the apostles. We are not talking here about some spurious long-distance sighting that looked a little bit like Jesus and that may or may not have been him. Well, no, the apostles were not in any doubt whatsoever that Jesus was alive and well. They'd seen him close up and personal. 
They'd spoken with him. They'd eaten with him. They'd touched him. And that is why when brought before the Sanhedrin in chapter 4 and commanded not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus and threatened as well, Peter and John replied, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We cannot stop. Surely, if there were doubts in their minds about the reality of Jesus' resurrection, then when threatened, well, at least some of them would have wound their necks in. But they didn't. They couldn't. Because Jesus had been raised. And it was the resurrection of Jesus that rightly explained what this crowd were seeing from the apostles. Not drunkenness, as they had presumed, but the outpouring of the Holy Spirit by the risen Lord Jesus. Have a look at verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he, Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. See, Jesus' exaltation made it possible for him to pour out the Holy Spirit In the book of the prophet Joel, we are told that God will pour out the Holy Spirit. So the fact that the Father has given the Holy Spirit to Jesus to pour out reveals that Jesus has been exalted to absolute glory at his Father's side and that he is now acting with the Father and sharing in his heavenly rule. Do you see where Peter is going with this? If Jesus is exalted to the Father's side, if he is ruling with his Father, if he is the one who has poured out the Holy Spirit, well then it would be a very, very big mistake, would it not, to carry on opposing this Lord Jesus. And then as if that were not enough, Peter gives the knife a little twist, doesn't he, in verses 34 and 35, quoting David again, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. (laughs) Hear the warning. One day, those who remain enemies of the risen Lord Jesus will be made his footstool. Jesus is risen. David was sure it would happen. The apostles were sure it had happened. Notice finally, coming up on the screen, we can be sure that Jesus is the risen Lord and Christ. We can be sure that Jesus is the risen Lord and Christ. That is basically Peter's message in verse 36. He says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So in view of the fact that David was sure that Jesus would be raised, and in view of the fact that the apostles are witnesses to the resurrection, all Israel should be sure that Jesus, whom they crucified, is both Lord and Christ. Well, this is great news. Well, it would be, but for those three words, whom you crucified. Suddenly, for them, it's terrible news. They crucified God's anointed eternal king who is now risen. And we might detect in verse 37 
an understandable sense of panic. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? Do you detect the panic? Perhaps even the terror in their voice. But the question that they ask ask, seems to suggest both a conviction of sin and a conviction of the truth about Jesus, which Peter has been explaining to them. Well, surely this is the work of the Holy Spirit who has just been poured out, not only enabling the apostles to speak about Jesus in different languages, but also immediately getting on with his convicting and saving work in the hearts of unbelievers. Now, if you were reading this for the first time, you might expect when they say, brothers, what shall we do? You might expect Peter to tell them to go to hell. But of course he didn't. He replied with those wonderful words in verse 38. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Only weeks before, they identified with Jesus' executioners. Maybe some of them were in the crowds that called for his execution. But the way of salvation and forgiveness is to identify with Jesus by being baptised in his name. Even the sin of murdering the Son of God, the Christ of God, can be forgiven. Forgiveness is the big difference, isn't it, between a Christian and a non-Christian. Christians don't go to heaven because they are good, but because they are forgiven. Non-Christians don't go to hell because they are bad, but because they are unforgiven. When you are living as a rebel against God, against God's anointed king, you are in deep, deep trouble. If they are panicking in verse 37, well, they were right to panic. But there is hope. There was hope for them and there is hope for us, whatever we have done. The thing to do when you realise your folly and stupidity and sin is to repent. That is, to turn from as much as you know of your sin to as much as you know of the Saviour and King, the Christ. To start treating him as the risen Lord and King that he is and then be baptised as an outward sign of that change of heart towards Jesus. Peter was speaking to Jews. Jesus is their Christ, the King of Israel. But Christ goes beyond Israel. Christ is God's anointed eternal King. He's the eternal King of the world. And indeed, verse 39 tells us that this offer goes beyond Israel. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. Verse 21 says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And here in verse 39 we see that first, he must call them. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but first he must call them. And he does that through the proclamation of the gospel. 
which is what Peter was doing here as he proclaimed the resurrection. Many today view Christianity only in subjective terms. You know, a good thing for those who like that kind of thing. But no, the New Testament doesn't leave room for that kind of nonsense. The resurrection of Jesus is an objective fact. Scripture points to it. David spoke of it. The apostles witnessed it. And that means that we, along with all Israel, can be assured that Jesus is indeed the risen Lord and Christ. And when you are assured that the risen Jesus is Lord and Christ, the only thing to do, the only wise thing to do, the only sane thing to do is to repent. To stop living as if you are in charge of your life, as if you are the king, and to start living with him as the king. There must be a personal response. May I say to those of us who are Christians that the Christian life is a life of ongoing repentance and faith. I need to realise in an ongoing way that I am not Lord and King. Only Jesus is Lord and King. I need to realise in an ongoing way that I am not Lord and King. Only Jesus is Lord and King. See also how powerful the message of the risen Lord Jesus is. The result of this first evangelistic sermon, verse 41, was that about 3,000 people were added to the church. In chapter 1, we were told there were about 120 Christians. But the church multiplied 26 times after this one sermon. That is the power of the gospel. And it is still powerful to save today. Pray that God would again do even that big scale saving work in our time, in our generation, in Fullwood, in Kendry, in our country, in our county, as the message of the risen Lord Jesus is proclaimed. As I finish, may I briefly say something to those who are not Christians? I mean, what Muppet would preach on these words and not, as Peter does, appeal for people to be saved? I know that if in a church uh, of around 100 people in Kendry, there are people every week who are non-believers, non-Christians present, well then there will certainly be some in a crowd this size. Verse 40 says, With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. He pleaded, save yourselves. The truth is, Every generation is corrupt, for every generation rejects the rightful rule of the risen King Jesus. Self-rule is corrupt rule and is seen in the many ways that we mess up our lives. We do make a mess of our lives, don't we? We must see the warning here. To carry on in self-rule, opposed to the risen King Jesus, will one day result in being made Jesus' footstool. But there is hope here. There is the offer of forgiveness for your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's good to be forgiven, isn't it? And forgiveness will never come better than this. So may I encourage you, if you can see from God's word tonight that Jesus is the risen Lord and Christ, 
if you can see through the fact of his resurrection that Jesus is Lord and Saviour, then do what Peter says. Repent and be baptised. Turn away from your self-rule and turn to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. If you want some help to do that, then do speak with Paul or uh, Ben or Peter or Tamar or Gareth or Joe or Sonia or Lorna. There's loads of people around here who can help you. But whatever you do, don't ignore the risen, ascended, exalted Lord Jesus without a second thought. For not one of us can afford to do that. Will you pray with me now? We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you spoke through your servant David of the resurrection of Jesus hundreds of years before it happened and for the trustworthy witness and message of the apostles by which you still today graciously bring rebels into your family. May we have the same certainty about Jesus that they had. If we are not yours yet, please grant us repentance and faith in Jesus. And if we are yours, give us confidence to proclaim this risen Lord that many more people in this community, in Sheffield, in Yorkshire, may know the joy of sins forgiven and the gift of your Holy Spirit. Please continue to grow your church today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.